Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president and Old Testament professor here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined today by Dr. Paul Jean, senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the D.C. area and also teaches New Testament here at the RTS campus. Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of systematic theology and Dr. Peter Lee, Dean of Students and Professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. Tommy Keene is not with us today. He's teaching an intensive uh, during our J term here when this is being recorded. And so every once in a while we, we lose someone to, uh, to the necessity of teaching, which um, of course is what we're all here to do. So we're gonna miss Tommy on this most important of conversations, the next line in the Apostles' Creed on the third day, he rose again. Okay, he rose again from the dead, talking about, of course, this important topic of the resurrection to the Christian life, resurrection to Christian theology, to our view, not only of ourselves individually, but the church and the place of the church and this place and time, and this is to use Pauline language, in this age, but anticipating the age to come, which Christ, of course, in this passage is inaugurating. This is a major issue. I remember one professor, I think it was Dick Gaffin, saying when you talk about the death of Christ, you actually have to talk about death and resurrection together, right? It's not, he said you also almost have hyphens between death and resurrection. This is all parts of the same whole. Uh, and as a matter of fact, you can even imagine where unhealthy theology and practices crept into the church when people focus too much on death and not on resurrection or focus too much on resurrection and forget about the death, right? So we, we started talking about death. We talk, talked about the fullness of this judgment that is imputed upon Christ for sinners. We talked about what are some of the implications of this idea of him descending into hell, the, the fullness of the condemnation that Christ is experiencing and now we're moving on to the hope, right? We're moving on to the second part of this important formula, the resurrection of Christ. So uh, let's start in, in, in a fitting place, I think. Let's start with the New Testament. Paul, what is the place of the resurrection or what, what, what is the significance of the resurrection in the New Testament? Well, I think there are so many ways you could approach this, but I just thought, of course, at RTS um, on the Book of Acts and Romans, right? And so you could approach it theologically um, and so forth. But what I would suggest is taking a look at Acts chapter 1. And uh, Luke goes out of his way to underscore the how Jesus uh, provided many proofs for the resurrection, right? And sometimes, I think, especially those of us that have become so familiar with uh, the Christian message, have been churched, uh, we, we lose the force of these words. Whereas when you have uh, young children reading uh, the Bible for the first time, they sometimes offer the best commentary. And so one of my kids uh, said to me that he can imagine the disciples just staring at Jesus and still being so awestruck that, oh my gosh, he, he's alive. And, I guess he is whom he claimed to be. And that having a kind of ripple effect on everything, whether it's the way they read their Bibles, the decisions that they make. And so once you 
really subscribe to the historicity, the reality of the resurrection, which Luke seems um, to underscore in, in the opening chapter of Acts. Uh, the rest of the narrative makes a lot of sense where uh, sometimes we'll ask questions like, how can you be bold as a Christian? How can you be faithful? How can you stand up even in the face of persecution? It seemed like for the disciples, uh, really everything else in life, whether it was the oppression of the Romans, the persecution of the Jewish leaders, or just even internal conflict in the church, these things were all placed in context. And what I mean by that is, yeah, these things are all real, just like these uh, realities hold true even today. But the more basic reality is Jesus has risen, which uh, confirms everything he is and does. So that's one way to look at it. If you look at it more from, you know, Romans and so forth, and I won't say too much here, but you see that uh, Paul ties it very closely to our justification. So all of that is to say that the New Testament's, you might say, appropriation of the resurrection is very rich and multifaceted. Yeah, there's this interesting turning point that seems to happen with the resurrection, isn't there? I mean, you even see it in a kind of microcosm in Peter. I always think about this. At the end of the Gospels, you have Peter denying Christ. Got all the Gospel accounts, right? He's falling short. He's misunderstanding. He's often speaking out but not getting it right. And then as Acts opens and you get to Acts 2 in Pentecost, suddenly Peter is this you know, incredible redemptive historical preacher. Right. <laughs> there's something that's happened between before and after, you know, and what is it? Of course, there's Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. But you have this lar larger description that over these, this time period between Christ's death and the coming of the spirit, you know, Christ is opening up the scriptures. He's teaching them, but he's no longer teaching them as merely the rabbi. Right. He's the risen Lord now. And you imagine it's 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 igniting all of their hermeneutics, right, about, about the Old Testament and the world around them, that now the risen Christ, we've all had rabbis teach, but we've never had a resurrected man teach us, right, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and it's changed everything. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned First Peter, Scott, with uh, the resurrection. I remember, um, you know, I, I, I took classes with uh, Ed Clowney during my seminary days, and he had a class, you know, he sort of made a uh, it, a career path to to do a a theme of preaching Christ in all of the scriptures, and he had a class entitled uh, "Preaching Christ Specifically in First Peter," mm -hmm. and and he actually has a small, uh, really nice commentary on First Peter, and and that's the case he used to make is that the resurrection of Christ is central to to Peter's message to a real suffering community of Christians, and and he uh, you know I'll just never forget the way he elaborated uh, on. Just the opening verse there in First Peter 1, in his great mercy, you have been given a new birth in, into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how mm -hmm. he looked at that in the resurrection of Christ as it's almost a hermeneutic is the way he did it. Uh, he didn't quite put it that way, but the, the resurrection isn't just a, an actual historical reality that happened that was uh, measurable and verifiable. But it's actually now a way of understanding uh, our theology. And he interpreted, you know, the new birth as a resurrection birth and then the living hope as a resurrection hope. And even talked about the adjective living there. You know, other places in First Peter, in chapter 2, you, we are called uh, living stones. 
uh, as Christ is the living stone. And again, alluding to the fact that the, we are resurrected stones, uh, that we are in union with Christ, we have been now raised. Uh, and it's, um, and it, it's fantastic. And I, and I loved how, how Dr. Connelly used to talk about the resurrection as, uh, as not just a historical event, but also as a way of almost understanding the scriptures, the New Testament as a whole. I'm glad you mentioned that, Peter, because something that really struck out to me when I was in seminary was the teaching and, and the writings of Dick Gaffin. Uh, you mentioned him as well, Scott, at the beginning of our podcast, where he argued that what happened in Christ in one go in the resurrection happens to the believers in two phases, right? So when Christ was resurrected, he had a renewed soul and a renewed body simultaneously in one go. But for those who are in union with Christ, believers who put their faith in him and are mystically united to him by way of the working of the Holy Spirit, we have a new regenerated soul, yet at the same time, the outer man is still wasting away, right? I think this is Second Corinthians uh, 4, 6 onwards, talking about the inward man being renewed day by day, but the outer man is still wasting away. So our regeneration by the Holy Spirit is actually consistent with a product of a fruit of Christ's resurrection. Just as Christ was resurrected, we too partake in his resurrection, though spiritually first by faith, and then later on through resurrection by sight. So there is a an already not yet character to our resurrection too, already regenerated by faith, though anticipating that last day where we will get a new body. But Christ's resurrection is also a guarantee that we too would be resurrected with him in the last day. Yeah, I'm glad you're glad, by the way, Gray, that I mentioned Ed Clowney. I'm glad that both of y'all are glad. Well, it's, it's very it's consistent. Be, yeah, well, it's glad <laughs> to be bad. glad. It's something, you know, about, uh, to kind of go off of that, Gray, the yeah. idea of us being resurrected in spirit. And, and I find myself talking about this a lot, particularly with young Christians, when you're dealing with what does it mean for my inner self because I'm still, I'm still struggling with these desires and I want these things and I don't want these things. Sounds very Pauline, right? You know, and yet I know I'm a Christian. Like what, what does that mean about the interior of me? And, you know, this idea of Christ's spirit, his resurrected spirit, his spirit of the resurrection in a sense, in, you know, filling us no longer you live who Christ, but Christ lives within you Galatians two twenty. If anyone says Christ is Lord and, you know, and basically means it salvifically, then it's because the spirit is saying it within them that we now have a new spirit, the spirit of Abba father, not to move off and talking about the spirit of sonship that can cry out Abba father. I don't want to move into talking about the spirit too much, but it's so important that as we're looking at the resurrected Christ, we are seeing now, something about the state of our inner self, right? The inner man that Paul uses or the spiritual man that we're breathing the fresh air of the new heavens of new and new earth, even while living in this world that is decaying and dying. And, and it's so important that when the Christian looks back, we're not just looking back on how great our hero is the hero of our faith, but we're looking at something that has been now also imputed to us. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And there's definitely, therefore, something eschatological, right, about what Christ's resurrection, resurrection has brought about. And by us being regenerated by the Spirit, we have partaken into this new creational order. Our new ability to follow Jesus Christ, our new ability to follow the law, actually testifies to this final reality where 
everyone would obey God, right? And everybody would obey God joyfully, consistently, and totally. Mm-hmm. And we are actually anticipating in that and already participating in it. And that's an incredible reality to think about as Christians. We are actually witnessing the, the, the future new creational order being lived out already partially today. Yeah. And, the, and in a way, the kind of the, you know, again, for the kind of going back to the young Christian who's struggling with sin or temptation or doubts, you know, in, in many ways, I think for the Christian, the frustration with that struggle is an outpouring of the fact of their inner renewal, right? And now you yearn for a greater thing, and yet you see also the temptations and the struggles that you're having, but you're seeing it now in light of this greater thing, which is the new heavens and new earth, which has been kind of implanted, an embassy of which has been implanted inside of you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it actually gives voice to why the struggle can be so stark all of, all of a sudden in a way that it wasn't before you were a Christian. It's why it's important that we see Romans 7 comes right after Romans 6, right? Romans 6 talks about the power of the resurrection, that when Jesus Christ died, we, our old selves, were crucified with him. When he was raised up, so were we raised up, so that we might have a new sanctified life to live before God. And then Romans 7 comes on, which reminds us that despite these new resurrection realities that we're living out, we still have these old desires that are, residues of our old selves clinging on to our new selves mm-hmm. and hence we have to struggle and you know scott what i liked about what you said there the struggle of the young christian is that the, the characteristic of sanctification is not comfort in holiness but struggle for holiness mm-hmm. the fact that you're struggling shows that you're alive and i think that's really really important to keep in mind because so that even as we're emphasizing these new creational resurrection realities we're not triumphalist about it we're realistic but the real struggles that will continue on in this life yeah, I, I, I truly uh, appreciate how we're putting this in the context of the Christian life and, and almost talking about the resurrection as a way of looking at our Christian life. And, and that's so fantastic and so deeply encouraging. And I'm, Scott, I'm so glad you put that in the context of young believers or struggling believers and how the doctrine of the resurrection can be seen as a way of an encouragement and, and blessing. And I don't know, guys, if you've ever had a chance to sit through some of our New Testament professors here in their classes, but uh, I've had a chance to sit in both Paul and, and Tommy's classes, and, and resurrection is everywhere. It's so fantastic uh, to hear how they are extrapolating that and emphasizing that in their instruction. Um, uh, it's just a great thing for our students and for people in general uh, to, to appreciate, I think, that our guys are really committed to the centrality of the resurrection and in their instruction in our classes around here. You know, Peter, along those lines, I have been wondering, I think about how it would really benefit Christians at all walks to just continue to meditate on the resurrection. Even with Paul, like you have that famous line where he says, listen, if Christ has not risen, then our preaching is in vain. And um, that conditional statement, like if, and all of Paul's life is built on that the resurrection happened. And as we've discussed, um, that the rest of the Christian life is sort of like a meditation and a reflection on all the rich implications of the resurrection. Now, a lot of scholars on a different note have written on how it was not easy for Paul and the disciples to believe in the resurrection because their Jewish worldview didn't lend to that. 
And so that's, I think, a very important um, point to highlight because sometimes when you might say the contemporary skeptic uh, says, well, of course, you know, they believed in the resurrection back then because they were more superstitious or religious people, right? What they don't realize is that, if anything, the Jewish worldview did not lend to really believing in the resurrection. And maybe, you know, uh, Peter, you or Scott can comment more on that because that's a very helpful point that the resurrection didn't come easily to uh, Greek or Jew alike. To kind of add on to that point, Paul, and the fixation on the resurrection for apologetics as well, I think a lot of people take the resurrection out of context to highlight that here's the proof of Jesus's divinity, here's proof that God exists. And that's really, I think, ripping away the resurrection from its redemptive historical context. Because in the context of redemptive history, what Peter was saying in the beginning of the book of Acts, what Paul sees in Romans chapter six is that Christ's resurrection symbolizes God doing something new. This is actually a new epochal shift in redemptive history. So it's not so much a vindication of the divinity of Jesus, though it is that, but it is more so in the fact that God is inaugurating this new covenantal, new creational order in an already not yet way in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think when we just fixate on the evidences of the resurrection and the resurrection vindicating uh, the, the divinity of Christ, we really miss that rich theological backdrop for the resurrection. Well, and you have this idea throughout the Old Testament that's so important. I mean, resurrection comes up a lot in the Old Testament, but it's in a variety of different ways, only a few of which may speak directly to what we're talking about here. But you have, I mean, you have clearly res, you know, resuscitations. You have people who have died and have been now been brought back to life. Actually, interestingly, usually revolving around the prophets uh, of Israel, like the unnamed man who's buried, the unnamed prophet who's buried in the cave, and then later a body is thrown into the cave, and the body springs up and pops back up. You know, the, the person comes back to life, which is one of those kind of somewhat comic stories of the Old Testament. Um, you have people being raised from the dead, you know, during the, during the ministry of Elisha, for instance. But in each one of those cases, though, it's not as if this person has been resurrected into the body imperishable that we see talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, for instance. You then have a resurrection as a, a symbol for the restoration of Israel, okay? You have a resurrection as, as sort of a symbol of restoration, whether that's, you know, something along the lines of, you know, you, you see the, the, the sprig that comes out of the stump of Jesse, the idea here being that the kingdoms are like trees and uh, the prophets use this regularly. Isaiah traffics in this, this language, you know, and the tree is cut down, but, but a sprig comes out of the dead stump, you know, out of the stump of Jesse springs this, this line. So in other words, the Davidic line is restored. You obviously have, you know, the language of, of resurrection in Ezekiel 37, where you have these, uh, this, this army that is laying dead, and, and the prophet makes a point of saying how long dead they've been. You know, they're so dead that the bones are dried up. There's not a hint of life. And then through the preaching of the word and the return of the spirit, they're resurrected. And then, of course, the prophet tells us, I'm talking about Israel after the, after the exile is done. So you have these passages that kind of speak to resurrection as a metaphor for the restoration of Israel that kind of culminate probably in Daniel 12. And this is the passage we come back to where you really have this kind of explicit foretelling of, of the history that has yet to take place 
in apocalyptic fashion, which is because it's apocalypse, it's highly symbolic, it's, it's highly metaphorical. And you have this passage that describes how those who were in the earth, those who had gone to sleep in the dust, shall awake. But notice it's not just being resuscitated for you know, another 20 years of life, it's unto everlasting life. Or actually for those, because it includes this idea of judgment, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting condemnation. And, and here, I, I mean, I take it to be, and Peter, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. There is this kind of world of ideas that, you know, very much like our discussion of the afterlife back when we talked about descending into hell, you know, or our notions of the Trinity or our understanding of forgiveness of sin. We have these, we have this world of ideas and themes that are slowly crystallizing over the course of redemptive history and finally fully crystallize in the person of Christ. But here in this late Old Testament text, Daniel, you have kind of a, you have have sort of more of a focus of, you know, all these ideas of resurrection out of death and death leading to life. They kind of focus in on Daniel. And yet even there, it's still in this kind of vague apocalyptic language. And then here we have Christ who comes, who is the true bovine, who is true Israel, who's living out the redemptive history of Israel, but living it out successfully. And guess what? the resurrection was always about what he was going to accomplish in the first place, right? And all of these themes sort of become manifest or um, incarnate, to coin a phrase, right? Yeah, they come incarnate in the person of Jesus. That's terrific, Scott. I think you're absolutely right. There does seem to be a way in which uh, resurrection becomes much more explicit there in Daniel, where you know you have allusions to it throughout the Old Testament, and it may, it may have something to do with the kind of the exilic themes that you find within uh, that post-exilic era that even though they're restored, it's not really restoration, that they're still in a sense in exile. And what is needed is sort of um, the type of resurrection or restoration that is needed is, is really kind of resurrection. Thus, mm. Ezekiel 37, Daniel 12. And a lot of the restoration, the real restoration, not the not the typological one that we saw there in in the Ezra Nehemiah, that type of restoration, but but the restoration that that the prophets were alluding to all of, to all along, is shrouded in the language of of resurrection. Now, to what degree the Old Testament readers were aware of that, I'm not sure, but it becomes very explicitly clear that with Christ and His resurrection, we have now true real restoration. And, you know, this is a point that, you know, someone like your hardest boss would make that with the resurrection of Christ, you now have the coming of the kingdom. And in Voss's book on the, um, I forget the exact title, but the teaching of the kingdom in the church, you know, he makes that big case that Jesus says that the kingdom is, has now uh, come, meaning he doesn't, it, it hasn't returned. It has now come as if this is a first time thing that has happened now uh, with, the, um, with the coming of Christ his death and resurrection and victory over sin and death, that we have reached a definitive point. But in many ways, the Old Testament is sort of building up to that climax point. It's not like it just happened, you know, all of a sudden. It, it's been yeah. kind of building uh, to uh, to that point. And, um, you know, even when Jesus was asked to defend the resurrection to the Sadducees, he cited the Old Testament covenant of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which always sort of I found interesting that, you know, meaning I am the God of the living, not the dead, to defend resurrection, and how there must be something intrinsic in Abraham 
in that patriarchal promise there that has in seed form, sort of historical redemptively, the doctrine of the resurrection. It's interesting. You've got this progression, too. I mean, if you look at intertestamental period um, literature, for instance, um, you know, you have, you have one through four Maccabees, right, which is this kind of history of the Maccabean revolts. They, they have varying levels of authenticity, right? But you have these two type stories that are told in the Maccabean account. One is from relatively early in Maccabees, you know, and then one is relatively late. And there are these type stories of these Jewish martyrs being tortured to death, okay? And it's interesting in the first story, so this is of course late, this would be late in the ancient, you know, Old Testament period, early in Second Temple Judaism. Okay, this is, you know, this is still a relatively you know, Jewish audience. One of the young men who's being martyred stands up and says, take heart, don't you know we'll be together in the resurrection, right? And then in the later account, now written probably, uh, you know, however many years later, after kind of a more Hellenization, Greek thought is now kind of moved in. You have the same story, group of martyrs being killed, tortured to death. One of them says, dear brothers, take heart. Don't you know that immortality awaits us? Okay. So you can see this shift that already in the early account, there's this hope in a resurrection that we probably even see kind of show up amongst in, in the Sanhedrin, right? Later in the New Testament, where some, some believe in it and some don't. Okay, and then we have Socrates, you know, taking his life saying, take heart, brothers, my, I'm about to enter pure reason. Okay, you know, in, okay, so you have all these ideas kind of floating around. First of all, believing in the resurrection as to, to what you brothers said earlier doesn't go without saying this is counter, this is a countercultural idea to believe in the resurrection. And yet it's also not this kind of merely Christian idea. I think that's the main thing here is that here you have by Daniel and Maccabees and the intertestamental period and Pharisaic belief, there's this idea of the resurrection coming, but it's still sort of uncrystallized, right? It's, 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 it's unfocused. When Christ comes on the scene, what is he doing? He's laying hold in his resurrection of exactly what this thing, the resurrection is about. He's kind of giving the locus of how this can take place. And I think this mirrors, mirrors a lot of the offense of Christianity. It's not that the fact of the idea, but the fact of the idea being finding its locus in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you're, and you're definitely right. I mean, there's obvious, I mean, you know, Jesus's resurrection, as you know, was not the first in a, in a manner of speaking. Even Elijah, you know, brought a young boy back from the dead in the book of Kings. And even prior to Jesus, he had uh, resurrections. And it's interesting how within the Second Temple movement, you had the idea of an eluded resurrection that is great, but you're still going to die again. And then that idea that there possibly is a resurrection into immortality. And it's already, again, heading in that direction. But, you know, so when we get to Christ, we now have a resurrection of an entire different magnitude. Uh, of an entire different kind. This is a resurrection that is, you know, unto glory. It, it is one, you will not die again from this resurrection. This is a, a different kind than the ones that we've seen before. Mm -hmm. uh, in many ways, this is sort of the illusion or the momentum that you saw in the Old Testament uh, kind of grappled on 
within the Second Temple literature is now seen in its fullest realization here uh, mm -hmm. in Christ. You know, Lazarus is going to die again, but those who have been raised in Christ will never die again. You know, uh, this is a resurrection unto glory. I think this is why Paul says this is a first fruits resurrection. Uh, he is the first to be raised in this sense unto eternal glory. And, and then we also, interesting, we are also first fruits is what it says. We're not second fruits because of the idea of union, how we are a kind of first fruits uh, in our resurrection as well. In that sense, we're not, our resurrection is not a Lazarus kind or a, you know, uh, the young boy of Nain type resurrection. Our resurrection is of Christ unto glory. Amen. Reminding us again of this sort of, there's a strong ethical aspect, I think, that kind of pops out to me at this. Is that this is not merely a thing we're remembering as an article of faith, but that there is this teleology to it, right? This is, this is, there's, there's an ethics to it. That we're resurrected people. We're people, or I should put it this way, we are people of the resurrection, right? And so everything we do in this life has to be done in light of that. We, we're not people who believe that that humans live but for a brief period and then they go out like a spark of the fire rising into the sky, you know. Um, but in this sense, there is this eternal resurrection that we live in light of. And that changes the way you approach the world, that changes the way that you approach your dealings with other people. And, uh, and you're thinking about this life that we're living. All right. Well, thank you, brothers, for talking about this. I'm always refreshed by our conversations and just hearing again about uh, these articles of our faith uh, with these ethical implications from all of these different disciplines. I love hearing about it from you all. And um, thanks for this conversation and look forward to continuing it next time we get together. For everyone else listening, take care. ready to talk about uh talk resurrection about resurrection you know Let's maybe we should uh we should do this in such a way that we have tommy uh kind of edited in so we say something like tommy what do you think of the resurrection leave a blank edit tommy in and they and then just respond knowing it's going to be great tommy to oh my gosh that's awesome that's amazing so insightful yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could work Let's practice right now. Tell them to say, we'll have one comment that starts with, good question, Peter. And then another one that starts with, I like what you just said there, Paul. And then he can just go on and say whatever he wants to say. That's awesome. Actually, you could do that quite easily, right, Timo? It's okay. You don't have to respond to that if you're taking care of family issues. <laughs>